let's change gears here. And uh, if you take out your sheet on Colossians, uh, and uh, we're going to go through this book here this evening. And uh, we're working our way through all the epistles of the Apostle Paul. I, I kind of say this, but I need to say it again. Do we understand that that term epistle is not some sort of fancy religious saintly term? You know, the epistle, okay, it's not a fancy term. Uh, it just means letter. That's all it means, okay? It's not that it's a religious term and, you know, somehow if it's called an epistle that it is religious now, sort of like sainting people and saying saint so-and-so and saint so-and-so uh, in the back, uh, you know, th- that you see these type of things. <clears throat> One thing before I forget. Ken, can you turn the screen off back there? So uh, if you could do that, it'll help us. <clears throat> Okay, the book of Colossians, I, I know this is going to come as a shock. You know, we, we have it here, but you go, who's the author? Okay, it's Paul. Um, and that one is pretty standard. Uh, no questions on that one. Paul announces that right from the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So uh, you have this. Uh, the time written, this is a prison epistle. So you go, okay. We've been marking off at least the last two prison epistles at this time period, about 59 to 61 A.D. Uh, We think that this is the case as far as looking at the time and some of the things that uh, happened in 1 Corinthians or that happened at the church at Corinth uh, that we know exact dates on. They dug up archaeological evidence of the individual Gallo there and were able to figure out when he was actually the ruler in Corinth, and you can put it down to one year's time. And so you can kind of figure off of that one exactly when the Apostle Paul was doing some of his stuff. Uh, And we really think that this is probably a a close date because uh, Paul goes free and does some ministry and then Nero has his, well, his fit of madness, quote-unquote. It was intentional, uh, probably the burning of Rome, and he blamed it on Christians in 64 AD. Um, This letter uh, was sent... Colossians uh, was sent along with uh, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Philemon. Philemon's a person. So these three letters went together. Tychicus was the one who carried it from Rome uh, to the region of Asia Minor. Okay, Asia Minor being uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey, but more specifically the area around Ephesus, which was right on the coast. Uh, and uh, that region and Colossae and uh, Philemon and we'll talk about uh, another church that's right nearby on this. Now, the unique readers of this church, uh, this letter, okay, this is a unique letter for the Apostle Paul because he's writing people he has not been physically where they're at, which is kind of amazing thinking through all the places the Apostle Paul was at in Asia Minor. He was never at Colossae but he's writing a letter to them. And you say, well, how and why would the Apostle Paul be concerned with this church? I mean, he does say in chapter 2 and verse 1 that they had not seen him by face, they had not seen them face to face. But Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and in the statement in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, Luke writes out this, that all of Asia heard of Jesus Christ, or the Lord Christ, okay? They heard about him. 
And you say, why is that? Well, Ephesus is a major port. If you're doing any sort of trade, you're going to go to Ephesus. And so you have people coming in by sea that come and drop things off. You have people from the regions round about, and they come and the back and forth traffic, people came in contact and heard of this Jesus who was causing such a stir that you had riots in the streets of Ephesus. Uh, this name of Jesus would have been known in that region and some of the things about him. And this whole process, uh, there is two possibilities that people come up with that Colossae may have heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church started. Uh, one of them is that Timothy went there, uh, was sent out, uh, you know, okay, go uh, to this town that's just upriver from Ephesus a, a little ways uh, and uh, preach the gospel there. There's many that think it may have been Epaphras, who's mentioned quite often in this letter, that he may have been the one that was the one that connected uh, these people because it seems like Epaphras is from the city of Colossae. Uh, or it could have been somebody else. But we're really not specifically told how this happened, but there's a church there. There's also a church in the same river valley, and we're a little bit more familiar with this church, Laodicea. Okay? It's in the same valley, and there's another city by the name of Hierapolis that also has a church in it. So you have this region where Paul wasn't at that has churches that are in it, and well-established churches. And so uh, how they got established, we don't know. Known but to God and to history, but we do not know exactly how these churches got started. But the Apostle Paul is writing them a letter and uh, it may have been because he heard some things about this church, and we'll see some of the discussion here, that they were starting to go down a wrong track. Okay, it's eight years after Paul had been in Ephesus, uh, and in eight years' time, they're already beginning to steer off course. And that's how quickly something can steer off course, and so Paul's going to write them, and that's part of the reason why. The connection with the Ephesians, the letters of the Ephesians and Colossians uh, were sent out at the same time. Uh, they were letters that Paul said other churches should read. Okay, what Paul's going to say at the end of his letter uh, to the Colossians is, hey, exchange your letters with the one I sent to Laodicea. You go, well, where's the letter to Laodicea? We don't have it. Okay, the Holy Spirit didn't see fit to have it uh, in our scriptures, and it's not something that we have. Uh, and so it's not something that we uh, can read, but Paul says, exchange these letters. Uh, and this is how it got around some of these stories uh, and the letters and the gospels is that churches were exchanging these things and copying them. The letters both had teachings about the church, but with different emphasis, especially this. Ephesians emphasizes the church as the body of Christ, Okay, it's talking about how the whole body assembles and, and it's knit together like the tendons and ligaments and arms and this is how the church is uh, functioning together as one. Uh, whereas Colossians emphasizes Christ as the head. Okay, the, the operational uh, center point of everything that goes on. The emphasis is, you know, it does talk about the church, but the emphasis is on the one who's in charge. Christ himself in the book of Colossians. And so the emphasis is different. Uh, excuse me, the letter to the Ephesians, uh, or Ephesus, emphasizes unity in Christ, whereas 
Colossians emphasizes a completeness in Christ. There's an emphasis in, in, in uh, the letter to Ephesus, the idea of unity, that we're together. Whereas Colossians, uh, it's more, you've got everything that you need. You don't need anything else. You're, 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 you're good the way you are because you have Christ. You have everything that you need. You're complete in Christ. Uh, and so that emphasis rather than unity is uh, the connection. But as you read through the books, the reason that they sound familiar is especially the section where you get to the end and it starts talking about husbands and wives, parents, children, master servants. You're going, I've read this somewhere before. And it almost sounds like you, know, you read through and there's even parallel type of statements in both books about these relationships. And so there is uh, this connection. Paul's writing at the same time, writing to churches, and he's got a general concern about things, a Holy Spirit concern, and he writes about some of these very same issues uh, to both of the churches. Now here comes the, the, the core of the most discussions as you read the book of Colossians and read through it. It's a heresy that seems to be going on in this church, false teaching that seems to be taking place, and it's really hard to pin down exactly what the heresy is, because it has multiple elements to it. It's all connected, but uh, it, it's rather strange. Uh, Paul didn't name the teachers, but it seems that the false teaching was some form of Gnostic Judaism. You're like, okay, I have no idea what either one of those is. Okay, it had an emphasis on celebrating certain days and feasts which the Judaizers would want. Okay? When you had Jews come into the church following after Paul, they'd come along to people and say, you have to be a Jew by following all the festivals we have, all the ceremonies we have. You have to do this. Okay? You have to do this. This is a, um, you know, set things on the calendar. You must do this as part of your following of Christ. Okay? So from one element, you're going to see this as we go through the book. You're going to see this kind of you know, weird kind of, okay, follow all the ceremonies and feast days and, and the like. But along with this, there's a, another system of thought that's going on that was more Greek in nature. And Gnosticism just simply means this, is that, it, that the word in, in its base core is the idea to know, okay? To know something, and, and what Gnostics did is that the Gnostics believed that an understanding of God was based on a superior knowledge for select individuals, okay? You, you have your average, you know, you have your average religious Christian people as they might have been talking, and then there's others with superior knowledge. They just know. And they know certain things that uh, others can't know because they are, well, they just have this knowledge. They've, they've obtained a different level of knowing, understanding. When you had this in uh, a system of knowing, guess what? Faith is minimized. Sort of like what we talked about on Sunday night. Uh, faith is not by sight, okay? 
And when they said, well, we know certain things, well, I don't have to have faith because I know certain things. And these are not things that you would find in Scripture. These are things beyond uh, a special knowledge. And it really seems to hover around what we're going to say next, okay? Gnosticism included the Greek idea that physical matter was somehow evil. Okay? This is what Greeks believed. This is why they had a hard time believing in the resurrection, because why would you have a resurrection for something that was evil? Your body, material matter. Okay, that's why philosophers laughed at Paul when he talked about the resurrection. He gets done with his speech at Mars Hill, and it kind of abruptly stops because he starts talking about the resurrection, and they're all like, oh, yeah, right. That'll never happen, because in their mind, physical matter was evil, thus the body was evil. So if matter's evil, God would not directly make it. God created angels, and sometimes they're, they're called emanations, you know, and it's kind of hard to even define what those are, but it, it generally seems to come back to the fact that God created certain beings that then created certain other beings that then created certain other beings, and though, you know, the being that was at the end of the line then made physical matter. The universe as we know it, because you don't want God touching it. And then if you have these beings that are there that are, you know, really great beings, they don't want to touch it. So, you know, you just keep kind of going down the line until you get one that is okay. All right, he's going to make it. You know, this is really kind of strange. But that's their thinking. God wouldn't make things that are evil, and God wouldn't, you know, touch evil things and sinful things and all of this. So, okay, you have to come up with something that's that. Well, the Gnostics believed that Christ was an angel, that he was a creation of God, and that, yes, okay, he may have created the universe, but he wasn't supreme. He was just merely the thing that created stuff. Okay, that, that's what's playing here. They would also argue that Christ could not take on human flesh because he would then be tainted by evil matter. This is something that John is going to have to battle, and we'll see this in his letters. I mean, this is kind of prepping us. Because when John's writing his letters, there are people that are going to say that Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. And you say, well, where are people getting this from? It's from their their previous worldview. They came out of a worldview that just simply said, your body and everything that's a part of it is evil, the gods really don't want to touch it, and when you die, that's the end of you. Okay, your soul may go someplace, but your body, mm -mm, don't worry about it. It's done. And so this is a worldview that they had that they begin to hear these religious teachers come along and begin to explain this, and they're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, yeah, that makes sense from my old worldview. Now, as such, okay, these false teachers would say this, would argue for restraining the body because the body is evil, okay? This is where the connection to the Judaizers comes in. Judaizers are saying, you have to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and there's, there's 603 commandments you've got to follow, and you've got to follow every single one of them, and there's, it's, it's a very rigid asceticism, 
monastic-like almost in some nature, uh, that you keep doing these things and what you'll do is you'll suppress your body that is evil and just keep it down. And uh, if you just do these things and keep this rigid arrangement, almost a stoicism to it, uh, if you do this, then you'll, you'll hold everything down, hold it under under control. So you just need to get yourself a good uh, set of restraining rules for your life and uh, live by that. And uh, even though your body's evil, uh, you know, if you just are rigidly aesthetic aesthetic in your um, lifestyle, uh, you'll at least be partially pleasing to God, maybe. And so this had come into the church and for us, we just think this is just completely out there. But understand, this is from their background. This is the stuff that they'd heard from generation to generation. And so somebody comes along and begins to connect it and sounds religious and it connects it to Christ and they explain certain things and realize this, you don't have all the scriptures that we have right now. And somebody comes along and starts explaining this and you're like, oh, oh, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'll live a very, you know, formalistic, rigid lifestyle. That's what I'm supposed to do because, you know, the body I'm living in is evil. Uh, It's going to be destroyed anyhow, but I'm going to try and limit it as much as I can. So that's what we're dealing with. And we're going to see Gnosticism more in other books dealing with the fact of their statements about Christ and who he is, but Colossians uh, seems to deal with the fact that it's actually flowing into the practice of the church, or attempting to be flown in, er, brought into the practice of the church. So that's what's going on here. So what Paul writes is this book that really has as its theme is this, is that Christ is preeminent or he is supreme. He is God. He is first place. It's not that he's a creation of something. He is the one who is supreme in the universe. And he created everything. And in him, you have everything that you need. You don't need festivals. You don't need feasts. You don't need anything else. You have it all in Christ. Christ is all you need. I mean, that's really what you could come down to uh, in this book, uh, is that he is preeminent supreme, but he is all that he needs. He is the answer for how one lives out his or her life. They don't need anything else. They don't need rigid rules. They need Christ. And so uh, that's uh, the theme of the book. So let's kind of go through it, and uh, we're going to go through some passages that are extremely familiar, but we're going to now understand this is what Paul is dealing with. He's trying to protect against this heresy, but he's going to work his way up to it, and then say, here's the practical outgrowth of knowing Christ. So the introduction, verses 1 through 8, nothing quite uh, too, too unusual about this. It is unique for that, but uh, you have the understanding that the Apostle Paul always starts his letter with some sort of thanksgiving for the church that he's writing to typically. And uh, he does in verse 3, gives thanks to God and all of this. But there's this little note in verse 2 that Paul is getting at what he is going to touch on. That God does touch physical matter. That he does deal with the universe. Uh, Look at verse 2. Paul makes a statement. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. God brings grace and peace into your life. He's the one who brings it directly to you. 
which means he's got to come in contact with you. So he's already kind of hinting at the fact, okay, I'm giving you this, uh, though it's very, very subtle, but he's, he's heading that way, okay, that God does want to uh, be close to you and that he has come near in his son. Uh, but you have that. So that's the, the, the introduction basically is, is the, the normal thing. But then Paul normally, as you go through his letters, has a prayer of some kind. A prayer for something for that church, not just merely thanksgiving. And that prayer starts in verse 9, and it starts our section, the, the preeminence of Christ. Okay, there's your, your blank there for people who are looking for it. Contact. Okay. Uh, but as you get to verse 9, he starts into this prayer, but it's what he uses this prayer to launch into this statement about Christ. Let's just read verse 9. It says this, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye may be filled with the knowledge, okay, you know, battling this Gnostic theology, uh, that you have knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated into the, us into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay, so you have this introductory statement. Okay, and what you have is that you have God, or Paul praising God for the fact that he has given strengthening to these people as praises for what Christ is and who he, or excuse me, what Christ is and what he has done. Because all of a sudden he goes, okay, God strengthened you, and I'm hoping that you grow in your knowledge and understanding of how you ought to live out your life, not by these rigid aesthetic rules that they're asking you to follow, but you live out your life the way you're supposed to. Uh, and God has done a transformational work through Jesus Christ, the Son. You've been moved from one location, the kingdom of darkness, to the kingdom of his dear Son. You've been translated, and here's what the Son did. And many think that when you get to uh, these verses, you're starting into a hymn. Okay, it's got a kind of a rhyme scheme that this may have been a hymn that was actually sung by the church, and there's words that possibly are here uh, as far as its poetic nature. Okay, look at verse 14. His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist, or we would use the term continue on. They move forward. And then you have uh, this th verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. See, so you have uh, these individuals that are trying to downplay who Christ is, but here you have Christ who is preeminent. 
It's by his work on the cross that he, uh, as you find in Philippians, another prison epistle, that one day all things will highly exalt him. That every creature on this earth will give praise to his name because he is the preeminent one, without question. Here he is uh, what he is because he created all things. Now, we have to go back to verse number 15, and we have a group of individuals right now that are taking up some of the theology of the Gnostics. Because what they look at in verse number 15, and they see this statement, that the Son is the firstborn of every creature, And they go, look, Jesus was created. They take that verse and then some of the statements where it's translated begotten, and they go, look, he was, he was born. He had his own creation. He's created. He's an, he's an emanation from God. He's a creation of God. He's not God himself. Uh, and look, he was created. And you go, okay, well, you, and, and what you find with many of the cults is you come down to the fact that they just don't do their homework when it comes to the language they aren't willing to. I mean, the word here, firstborn, in that culture was a term that was used to describe the position or the title of an individual if you were the person in the home that was the first place, that's the title you had. There is a term that was very similar to this that would have said that you could have added the word first creation first creature you could there's a term in the greek for it we're very similar into this but you change the ending word and if god wanted to say that the son was a creature created being he would have used that term but this term is the one that's used and it's the idea that this one is in charge of everything that's the idea here it's not that he was born that he was created nothing no that's a term describing a position and so when you get to this, you have modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses go, oh, well, he was created. Uh, he's not really God. He just got the name of God given to him later on. He's really not God. Okay, so they're kind of continuing what the Gnostics believed 2,000 years ago. So uh, don't be taken by that statement where it's saying that. But when you get done with this, you're going, okay, he has the first place both in heaven and in earth, and he's even this, and most importantly for the Apostle Paul, he's the one in charge of the church. The way he displays himself in this world right now, most specifically, is through the body, the, the church that he is the head of. He is the leader of this. He is the firstborn of the dead that rose uh, from the dead, which the church is filled with individuals that will be raised from the dead. Yes? Verse, verse number 15 says this, that he's the firstborn of every creature. And that's why the, the Jehovah's Witnesses will take that term and go, okay, that's, he's born. And you're going, no, that's not what that title means uh, in the Greek culture. It meant the ruler or the authority. So, yeah. But anyhow, so you get through this and you say, well, how was this uh, done? Well, look at this. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, 
And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in heaven or things on earth, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I am Paul made a minister. He basically says, Christ is the center of everything. You lose him, he's the gospel. You for, for forget what he's done, you're going to get off on these weird teachings like this. He is the central focus of the gospel. He is the gospel. And so Paul goes through this, and then verses 24 through uh, 2, 3, okay, we'll give you this uh, statement. To move away from Christ would cause one to miss their eternal rewards. You ignore him, and you go away from him. It may very well be that you're not saved. You didn't get enough of understanding who he was to accept what uh, he's done, but don't move away from Christ. Paul, verses 24 through 2, 3, basically argues his position, okay? I'm not going to spend much time on this because it's more technical-wise saying I'm able to do this, but Paul takes time to explain his ministry. He had the privilege of making known the mystery of Christ who indwells every believer. This is something that people didn't understand in the Old Testament, but that God would dwell in them. Not, we're not even just talking about the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about Christ himself dwells in us, Okay? This is a mystery revealed in the New Testament. And Paul is telling people this, that God will dwell in you. Uh, This teaching combated the idea that God would have nothing to do with his physical creatures and that God was knowable only to a select few. Paul was able to preach that every man could have God's indwelling. You want to say that God doesn't want to be involved with human beings and have anything to do with them? Well, he is dwelling in individuals. Okay, that's as close as you can get to somebody. And God is willing to do this, and so he says, I'm a minister of this, I have the opportunity to explain this, uh, and this is my mission, to make clear that God really does want to have something to do with you. It's at this point that the Apostle Paul goes into attacking this heresy that is there in this church. You see in verse 4, Paul says this, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent, I am yet am I with you in spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Verse 6, As ye therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you, through philosophy, vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Why would you want to go away from Christ? Because verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And so he just starts off here and he goes, okay, I'm warning you that the individuals that are there that are pulling you away from this are doing it through a very subtle means. You think about how 2 Corinthians talks about this, that even, the, uh, even Satan has transformed himself into an angel of light 
in order to blind the minds of them that would come to the glorious message of the gospel of Christ. See, false teachers use beguiling words to get individuals to move from Christ. Paul told the church to focus their attention and walk on Christ. Their attention and walk on Christ. He had accomplished all that they needed. The believers had the guilt of their sins removed from them. They died and rose again in Christ. They had been made alive. They had had their sins judicially forgiven by the cross. In fact, uh, the, the, the description of this, that you think about what Christ did, looking at verse number 14 of chapter 2, here's what Jesus did on the cross. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I mean, you read that statement, and what it's like is this, is that Jesus Christ took all the laws and the rules that pronounced you guilty, took them on the cross with them, and then what it was like is this, is that it was a triumphant parade. Even though he was dying on the cross, his work was to show that he had defeated all of these things. A triumph, that word, is a Roman word. It was used for a parade for a Roman general who had defeated an enemy, and what you would do is have this massive parade, and you would have all these bands in front of him, and then they would take all the prisoners that he had captured, and all of the goods and possessions that he had captured, and then at the end, here comes along this general, and everyone would praise this individual for the incredible things that he had done. And that's where the terminology that's used here. Jesus Christ had done the greatest work and had taken the sins that you had and nailed them to the cross. Defeating the worst enemy that you have. And so he's saying, why would you want to give up Christ? Well, it's because these people are very subtle in what they're doing. So he then, in verse number 16 begins to say this. Since Christ had done these things, Paul commands two things. Okay? First, believers are not to cling to rituals and festivals, but cling to Christ. Okay? Verse 16. It says this, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or of a new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. He's just basically saying this, what these people are holding on to were all shadows of the reality that's now here, Christ. They were all pointing to him and they've ignored that. They're still back in the, you know, let's follow these feast days and they've got the actual, you know, the actual thing. They're, they're, they're holding on to the shadows as some have called it. They're grasping those when they could have the, the reality of what's there. And Paul says, stop worrying about that, cling to Christ. And then secondly, believers are now not to follow the false humility and prideful worship of the angels, but to hold the Christ who gives life to the body. Uh, th- this weird wording here, but it's, it's talking about verse 18, let no man beguile you uh, of your reward and voluntary humility and worshiping of angel, angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind okay these people think they know something they know something about all these uh, angels and whatever else that you don't really understand and that and they're explaining this and they know nothing even though they go around and are very humble about this you know a humble brag you never hear that term 
goes, don't follow after individuals like that. Follow after the one who is the one who's given you everything. All that you need. So then Paul stops and says, okay, what does it look like to be a person who's following after Christ? Okay, these people will go, you, you, you do this and you do this and you have these certain rules and rituals that you follow and you do these things. Paul goes, okay, let me give you what it looks like for a person who knows Christ. And when you get to chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this, if ye then be risen with Christ... And you really ought to take that in the Greek. It's the idea, since, okay? You, you, you have been risen with Christ, okay? You've been raised up with him. Here's what you ought to do. Seek those things which are above, which were, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things in the earth. For ye are dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Okay? Look to Christ, Look to the heavens. Look to where he's at, sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting for his return, and look towards him. And look towards him in this way. And so what you have is this. The believers to have a focus on Christ. This focus will then reflect in the way one lives out their life. The believer can live differently because in Christ, the old man has been put off. And the new man has been put on. This new clothing displays itself in such things as humility and mercy and in uh, all of these things that you would say is a spirit life, a love, a love and thanksgiving and peace. I mean, what you're doing when you focus on Christ is you're already doing the reality that's there. You've put off the old man, the new man's been put on. Now in your practice of life, you're putting off the old life and putting on the new that's what it ought to look like. I mean, you put off in verse 8, these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another. You have this new man, and so what do you do with this new man? Verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy beloved, bowels of mercy, okay, intestines of mercy. Uh, your emotions are uh, seated in the Greek mind uh, in your intestines. But intestines of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have quarrel against any, even as Christ gave for you, forgave you, so do ye also. I mean, you go through and you're going, okay, this doesn't sound like a set of rules. It's just saying, be like this. You know, Christ forgave others. You look like Christ. Okay, he was kind. He was merciful to people. You do the same things. You just reflect Christ. And for these believers, as they go through, this is no longer a, uh, a ritualistic thing. I've got to do this. No, it's now going, well, you know, I'm reflecting the one who's given me everything. You know, th this is a joy. It's not a drudgery to be able to do this. For the church, you say, okay, what is, uh, happens? Paul then laid out relationships where this uh, life in Christ can play out. Okay, you want to see it displayed? Look at the relationship of husband and wife. Look at the relationship of a master and a servant. Look at the relationship of a father with a child. And not only that, uh, Paul says, okay, uh, in chapter 4, he says, okay, you, know, you want to see this worked out? Go to your local church body. And hopefully you see uh, in uh, verse 2 that you have this continuing prayer. Watch with the same with thanksgiving. That you're praying for one another. Verse 5, that you're walking wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. That you as a church, when the world looks at you, goes, those are wise people. 
Okay, it ought to be that way. In verse 6, let your speech be always uh, with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how you ought to answer every man. So you're just kind of going, so I kind of look like Christ. Okay, yeah. So if I have my focus on Christ rather than all these rules and regulations and religiosity things that they have and I have my focus on Christ I'll live differently and it will be obvious and it's not going to have to really in a, one sense be forced it's because I see Christ I'm just going to do these things the answer is mm-hmm. so Paul ends his letter basically right there okay it's at this point that you have the conclusion and basically what he then says is this is in verse 7 that Tychicus is going to show up and he is going to come. Uh, there's going to be an Onesimus who comes along with. Very important because Onesimus plays a major role in the book of Philemon, or the letter to Philemon. Uh, he's going to help. Greetings were exchanged with, uh, from those that were with Paul. And the final request, Paul tells the church to share their letter with the church at Laodicea. You got in this letter? Okay. You take it across the river valley over to Laodicea and tell them, hey, you've got something to read from the Apostle Paul. He told us you need to read us, and you've got a letter too, so let us see it. <clears throat> We're going to read that this Sunday, and you can read this this Sunday. Uh, and, uh, and so you have uh, that going on, and then it just kind of closes with this, and say to Archippus, verse 17, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. We don't know if he was the pastor of the church here, some person that's there in the church that has another ministry that he's on, whatever the case is, Paul just says, you as a church encourage him to do the work that God's called him to. Amen. He's done. Okay? So he gets done with this message that you have everything that you need in Christ. Why would you want anything else? You're complete in him. And so uh, to live anything else and live any other way is a very sad, meagerly, and oftentimes wrong way to live out your life if you're saying, okay, let's follow rules and regulations. Now, there are rules and laws and that, but I don't give my life pursuing those things. I'm pursuing Christ and Him. Yes? Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses would be a modern-day Gnostic. They are individuals that believe that Christ did not come in the flesh. And so they would be our best example of an organization that would claim that. They, in fact, claim that he was an, an emanation, an emanation, an emanation, and eventually he is the one who creates. And then what the Jehovah's Witness will say is this, is that they will say that when he created the world, God gave him his name. So he becomes God even though he's a created being. That does. Um, you you have people that would claim that, and it's not necessarily a religious organization. It's usually an individual that goes, "I have a superior knowledge." You know, you get a lot of this in your charismatic television. You know, ah, apicapicasoya, thus saith the Lord. I've got a you know, I've got a word from the Lord. You know, oh well, we don't know that word. Why don't you tell us? Um, yeah, so in modern-day charismatics, you would have that. I don't think they generally you know, claim to have a superior knowledge in the sense that these people were, 
but they, by their proclamations, are saying they have a superior knowledge. So, yeah. Yep. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. He is our hope. It's a hope of glory, as uh, it says here in Colossians. Uh, without him, there is no hope, but uh, because of what he did triumphing on the cross, uh, we have the hope of life eternal. And so, Lord, help us to get our focus more on Christ, look to him and see him and reflect him uh, by our life because we know him, not some sort of superior mystical knowledge, that we know Christ and thus, thus reflect his life in the way that we go through our activities in the day. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.